0: Chapter one Part one of The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection by Charles Darwin This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Your Reader Michael Armenta Chapter one Variation under Domestication Causes of Variability Effects of Habit and the Use and Disuse of Parts Correlated variation, inheritance, character of domestic varieties, difficulty of distinguishing between varieties and species, origin of domestic varieties from one or more species, domestic pigeons, their differences and origin, principles of selection, anciently followed, their effects, methodical and unconscious selection, unknown origin of our domestic productions, CIRCUMSTANCES FAVORABLE TO MAN'S POWER OF SELECTION CAUSES OF VARIABILITY When we compare the individuals of the same variety or sub-variety of our older cultivated plants and animals, one of the first points which strikes us is that they generally differ more from each other than do the individuals of any one species or variety in a state of nature. And if we reflect on the vast diversity of the plants and animals which have been cultivated and which have varied during all ages under the most different climates and treatments, we are driven to conclude that this great variability is due to our domestic productions having been raised under conditions of life not so uniform as somewhat different from those to which the parent species had been exposed under nature. There is also some probability in the view propounded by andrew knight that this variability may be partly connected with excess of food it seems clear that organic beings must be exposed during several generations to new conditions to cause any great amount of variation and that when the organisation has once begun to vary it generally continues varying for many generations no case is on record of a variable organism ceasing to vary under cultivation Our oldest cultivated plants, such as wheat, still yield new varieties. Our oldest domesticated animals are still capable of rapid improvement or modification. As far as I am able to judge, after long attending to the subject, the conditions of life appear to act in two ways. Directly, on the whole organization, or on certain parts alone, and indirectly by affecting the reproductive system. With respect to the direct action, we must bear in mind that in every case, as Professor Wiseman has lately insisted, and as I have incidentally shown in my work on variation under domestication, there are two factors, namely the nature of the organism and the nature of the conditions The former seems to be much the more important, for nearly similar variations sometimes arise under, as far as we can judge, dissimilar conditions. And, on the other hand, dissimilar variations arise under conditions which appear to be nearly uniform. The effects on the offspring are either definite or indefinite. They may be considered as definite when all or nearly all the offspring of individuals exposed to certain conditions during several generations are modified in the same manner. It is extremely difficult to come to any conclusion in regard to the extent of the changes which have been thus definitely induced. There can, however, be little doubt about many slight changes, such as size from the amount of food, colour from the nature of the food, thickness of the skin, and hair from climate, etc. Each of the endless variations which we see in the plumage of our fowls must have had some efficient cause, and if the same cause were to act uniformly during a long series of generations on many individuals, all probably would be modified in the same manner. Such facts as the complex and extraordinary outgrowths which variably follow from the insertion of a minute drop of poison by a gall-producing insect, shows us what singular modifications might result in the case of plants from a chemical change in the nature of the sap. Indefinite variability is a much more common result of changed conditions than definite variability and has probably played a more important part in the formation of our domestic races. We see indefinite variability in the endless slight peculiarities which distinguish the individuals of the same species, and which cannot be accounted for by inheritance from either parent or from some more remote ancestor. Even strongly marked differences occasionally appear in the young of the same litter, and in seedlings from the same seed capsule, at long intervals of time, out of millions of individuals reared in the same country, and fed on nearly the same food, deviations of structure so strongly pronounced as to deserve to be called monstrosities arise, but monstrosities cannot be separated by any distinct line from slighter variations. All such changes of structure, whether extremely slight or strongly marked, which appear among many individuals living together, may be considered as the indefinite effects of the conditions of life on each individual organism in nearly the same manner as the chill affects different men in an indefinite manner, according to their state of body or constitution, causing coughs or colds, rheumatism, or inflammation of various organs. With respect to what I have called the indirect action of changed conditions— namely, through the reproductive system of being affected, we may infer that variability is thus induced, partly from the fact of this system being extremely sensitive to any change in the conditions, and partly from the similarity, as Colruder and others have remarked, between the variability which follows from the crossing of distinct species, and that which may be observed with plants and animals, when reared under new or unnatural conditions. Nothing is more easy than to tame an animal, and few things are more difficult than to get it to breed freely under confinement, even when the male and female unite. How many animals there are which will not breed, though kept in an almost free state, in their native country? This is generally but erroneously attributed to vitiated instincts. Many cultivated plants display the utmost vigour, and yet rarely or never seed. In some few cases it has been discovered that a very trifling change, such as a little more or less water at some particular period of growth, will determine whether or not a plant will produce seeds. I cannot here give the details which I have collected and elsewhere published on this curious subject, But, to show how singular the laws are which determine the reproduction of animals under confinement, I may mention that carnivorous animals, even from the tropics, breed in this country pretty freely under confinement, with the exception of the plantigrades, or bear family, which seldom produce young, whereas carnivorous birds, with the rarest exception, hardly ever lay fertile eggs. Many exotic plants have pollen utterly worthless in the same condition as in the most sterile hybrids. When, on the one hand, we see domesticated animals and plants, though often weak and sickly, breeding freely under confinement, and when, on the other hand, we see individuals, though taken young from a state of nature, perfectly tamed, long-lived, and healthy, of which I could give numerous instances, yet having their reproductive system so seriously affected by unperceived causes as to fail to act, we need not be surprised at this system when it does act under confinement, acting irregularly, and producing offspring somewhat unlike their parents. I may add that as some organisms breed freely under the most unnatural conditions, for instance rabbits and ferrets kept in hutches, showing that their reproductive organs are not easily affected, so will some animals and plants withstand domestication or cultivation, and vary very slightly, perhaps hardly more than in a state of nature. Some naturalists have maintained that all variations are connected with the act of sexual reproduction, but this is certainly an error, for I have given, in another work, a long list of, quote, sporting plants, end quote, as they are called by gardeners that is, of plants which have suddenly produced a single bud with a new and sometimes widely different character from that of the other buds on the same plant. These bud variations, as they may be named, can be propagated by grafts, offsets, etc., and sometimes by seed. They occur rarely under nature, but are far from rare under culture. As a single bud out of many thousands produced, year after year, on the same tree under uniform conditions, has been known suddenly to assume a new character, and as buds on distinct trees growing under different conditions have sometimes yielded nearly the same variety. For instance, buds on peach trees producing nectarines, and buds on common roses producing moss roses we clearly see that the nature of the conditions is of subordinate importance in comparison with the nature of the organism in determining each particular form of variation. Perhaps of not more importance than the nature of the spark by which a mass of combustible matter is ignited has in determining the nature of the flames. Effect of Habit and the Use or Disuse of Parts Correlated Variation inheritance changed habits produce an inherited effect as in the period of the flowering of plants when transported from one climate to another with animals the increased use or disuse of parts has had a more marked influence thus i find in the domestic duck that the bones of the wing weigh less and the bones of the leg more in proportion to the whole skeleton than do the same bones in the wild duck, and this change may be safely attributed to the domestic duck flying much less and walking more than its wild parents. The great and inherited development of the udders in cows and goats in countries where they are habitually milked, in comparison with these organs in other countries, is probably another instance of the effects of use. Not one of our domestic animals can be named which has not, in some country, drooping ears, and the view which has been suggested that the drooping is due to disuse of the muscles of the ear, from the animals being seldom much alarmed, seems probable. Many laws regulate variation, some few of which can be dimly seen, and will hereafter be briefly discussed. I will here only allude to what may be called... Correlated Variation Important changes in the embryo or larva will probably entail changes in the mature animals. In monstrosities, the correlations between quite distinct parts are very curious, and many instances are given in Isidore Geoffroy St. Hilaire's great work on this subject. Readers believe that long limbs are almost always accompanied by an elongated head. Some instances of correlation are quite whimsical. Thus, cats which are entirely white and have blue eyes are generally deaf. But it has been lately stated by Mr. Tate that this is confined to the males. Colour and constitutional peculiarities go together, of which many remarkable cases could be given among animals and plants. From facts collected by Heusinger it appears that white sheep and pigs are injured by certain plants, while dark-colored individuals escape. Professor Wyman has recently communicated to me a good illustration of this fact. On asking some farmers in Virginia how it was that all their pigs were black, they informed him that the pigs ate the paint-root lacnanthes, which colored their bones pink and which caused the hooves of all but the black varieties to drop off and one of the crackers i e virginia squatters added we select the black members of litter for raising as they alone have a good chance of living hairless dogs have imperfect teeth long-haired and coarse-haired animals are apt to have as is asserted long or many horns Pigeons with feathered feet have skin between their outer toes. Pigeons with short beaks have small feet, and those with long beaks, large feet. Hence, if man goes on selecting, and thus augmenting, any peculiarity, he will almost certainly modify, unintentionally, the other parts of the structure, owing to the mysterious laws of correlation. The results of the various unknown or but dimly understood laws of variation, are infinitely complex and diversified. It is well worthwhile carefully to study the several treatises on some of our old cultivated plants, as on the hyacinth, potato, even the dahlia, etc., and it is really surprising to note the endless points of structure and constitution in which the varieties and sub-varieties differ slightly from each other. The whole organization seems to have become plastic and departs in a slight degree from that of the parental type. Any variation which is not inherited is unimportant for us, but the number and diversity of inheritable deviations of structure, both those of slight and those of considerable physiological importance, are endless. Dr. Prosper Lucas's treatise, in two large volumes, is the fullest and the best on this subject. No breeder doubts how strong is the tendency to inheritance. That like reduces like is his fundamental belief. Doubts have been thrown on this principle only by theoretical writers. When any deviation of structure often appears, and we see it in the father and child, we cannot tell whether it may not be due to the same cause having acted on both, But when among individuals apparently exposed to the same conditions, any very rare deviation, due to some extraordinary combination of circumstances, appears in the parent, say, once among several million individuals, and it reappears in the child, the mere doctrine of chances almost compels us to attribute its reappearance to inheritance, everyone must have heard of cases of albinism, prickly skin, hairy bodies, etc., appearing in several members of the same family. If strange and rare deviations of structure are truly inherited, less strange and commoner deviations may be freely admitted to be inheritable. Perhaps the correct way of viewing the whole subject would be to look at the inheritance of every character, whatever as the rule and non-inheritance as the anomaly. The laws governing inheritance are for the most part unknown. No one can say why the same peculiarity in different individuals of the same species, or in different species, is sometimes inherited and sometimes not so. Why the child often reverts in certain characteristics to its grandfather or grandmother, or more remote ancestor why a peculiarity is often transmitted from one sex to both sexes or to one sex alone, more commonly but not exclusively, to the like sex. It is a fact of some importance to us that peculiarities appearing in the males of our domestic breeds are often transmitted, either exclusively or in a much greater degree, to the males alone. A much more important rule which I think may be trusted, is that at whatever period of life a peculiarity first appears, it tends to reappear in the offspring at a corresponding age, though sometimes earlier. In many cases this could not be otherwise. Thus the inherited peculiarities in the horns of cattle could appear only in the offspring when nearly mature Peculiarities in the silkworm are known to appear at the corresponding caterpillar or cocoon stage, but hereditary diseases and some other facts make me believe that the rule has a wider extension, and that, when there is no apparent reason why a peculiarity should appear at any particular age, yet that it does tend to appear in the offspring at the same period at which it first appeared in the parent I believe this rule to be of the highest importance in explaining the laws of embryology these remarks are of course confined to the first appearance of the peculiarity and not to the primary cause which may have acted on the ovules or on the male element in nearly the same manner as the increased length of the horns in the offspring from a short-horned cow by a long-horned bull though appearing late in life is clearly due to the male element. Having alluded to the subject of reversion, I may here refer to a statement often made by naturalists, namely that our domestic varieties, when run wild, gradually but invariably revert in character to their aboriginal stocks. Hence it has been argued that no deductions can be drawn from domestic races to species in a state of nature. I have in vain endeavoured to discover on what decisive facts the above statement has so often and so boldly been made. There would be great difficulty in proving its truth. We may safely conclude that very many of the most strongly marked domestic varieties could not possibly live in a wild state. In many cases we do not know what the aboriginal stock was, and so could not tell whether, or not, nearly perfect reversion had ensued it would be necessary, in order to prevent the effects of intercrossing, that only a single variety should be turned loose in its new home. Nevertheless, as our varieties certainly do occasionally revert in some of their characters to ancestral forms, it seems to me not improbable that if we could succeed in naturalizing, or were to cultivate, during many generations, the several races, for instance of the cabbage, in very poor soil in which case however some effect would have to be attributed to the definite action of the poor soil that they would to a large extent or even wholly revert to the wild aboriginal stock whether or not the experiment would succeed is not of great importance for our line of argument for by the experiment itself the conditions of life are changed If it could be shown that our domestic varieties manifested a strong tendency to reversion, that is, to lose their acquired characters, while kept under the same conditions, and while kept in a considerable body, so that free intercrossing might check by blending together any slight deviations in their structure, in such case, I grant that we could deduce nothing from domestic varieties in regard to species." but there is not a shadow of evidence in favour of this view. To assert that we could not breed our cart and racehorses, horses long and short-horned cattle, and poultry of various breeds, and esculent vegetables, for an unlimited number of generations, would be opposed to all experience."